You're listening to episode 77 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. What I want most when I sit down to watch a picture is to see women together on screen. It's why, for me, Sadie McKee is the best picture Joan Crawford made in the 1930s, because she plays next to stalwart dame Jean Dixon and the luscious Esther Ralston. I would always choose it over Possessed, where poor Joan's character Marion is in dire need of a friend. Ditto for Possessed in 1947. Humoresque is 30 minutes of torture until Joan finally appears. The Mad Miss Manton is like cake and ice cream versus the sausage fest that is ball of fire. Put Barbara Stanwyck and the company of society dames swaddled in fur rather than a bunch of academic men for a top-class screwball comedy. I will always take Marked Woman over Dark Victory for the best of what Betty Davis does when flanked by a cortege of sassmouth dames like Mayo Method. It's why I have seen the women more times than I can count, why I will argue the merits of Cry Havoc, Stage Door, and The Gold Diggers of 1933. Sometimes I look at a star such as Sylvia Sidney, and I think the poor dear, nothing but men, men, men. No wonder she was paid by the tear. I want to see women chew the fat, gossip, bicker, make wisecracks, console and egg each other on, and get the best lines. No More Ladies from 1935 fits the bill, because it boasts outstanding performances. In addition to Joan Crawford, there's Edna May Oliver, Gail Patrick, and Joan Fontaine. No More Ladies gives me everything I need, a collection of sassmouth dames, highballs, style, and a woman who turns the tables on a man. On the set of Chain from 1934, director Clarence Brown tried to get Joan to rally for a scene. He told her, you're one of the three actresses in this town who can do anything, so do it. Joan did what he asked, without stopping to find out who the other two women were in her company. She can do anything. She can make you believe the poor gal who worked in her mother's laundry before she could see over the counter and who cleaned up after her classmates to pay her way through what little schooling she received, was to the manor born. 
As publicized as her Dickensian childhood was, it must have thrilled her fans then as it does now. When she gathers a bit of luxurious gown at her thigh with her head held high and makes an exit like a queen. Joan Crawford gives viewers a blueprint for elbow room among the swells. Speech, manners, poise, you can acquire all of them, just like a slinky gown or a pair of ankle strap pumps. Joan Crawford looks like a natural posh dame and no more ladies. Forget that shop girl stereotype. Joan had the range to play women who had to skip lunch to afford stockings, but she was also totally convincing playing women who had a vase of flowers outside her bedroom door. By 1935, Joan had perfected her Lady Mary voice. Ice wouldn't melt on her Park Avenue timber. She pronounces Sherry, her boyfriend's name, as though the double R were really double D for Shede. Joan worked like a dog on her speaking voice, training a flat Texas twang into a formidable society accent with enunciation sharp enough to slice bread. If you ever doubt her industry, listen to how she emphasizes every syllable. Joan's accent here unfurls like a grain ribbon, stylish, taut, versatile. Coupled with high-vis glamour, Joan is at her glossiest MGM best. Sure, I want to see her scrub pots in the hooskow with Marie Prevost and ride the subway with Jean Dixon, but I also want her to play a character who had never had to worry about her daily bread. Joan Crawford's eyelashes are long enough to provide cover and keep her dry under a summer rainstorm. They are fabulous, and who cares if it was a challenge for the cinematographer to keep shadows from falling across her face? Light the dame up. Sidney Gwilleroff gave Joan two hairstyles, one with a fringe and the other with a center part, and two texture style that he often used for her mid-1930s pictures, smooth from the roots and then falling into tight curls that sweep out from either side of her face. Joan was at the peak of her beauties, beauty in the 1930s here. She noted in her memoir that she lived her characters for 14 hours a day when she made a picture, and it shows here in No More Ladies. From her first scene, she shows us so much with her of her character's interior life before she tells the viewers anything with dialogue. A glance at the clock and then her day planner makes plain that a lady has been stood up for a dinner date with Sherry. Dressed to kill. Joan has had enough and prepares for bed. Joan Crawford turns the act of undressing into a graceful ballet. She tosses a black velvet capelet and matching belt and a silk gown onto the floor with more subtext than Salome's seven veils. She pulls at dress snaps as though they were a parachute string on an earthbound trajectory. She could have glided from space on the pearlescent silk gown she wears. Oh, a head will roll, Joan warns us as she flings her glad rags about, but it won't be a bearded prophet. It'll be some man in a tuxedo from the society register. 
The way she disrobes tells us she's angry, humiliated, hurt, and mad at herself for letting her a man make her feel so small. I could watch Joan undress on a loop. I think about the conference she must have had with Adrian when they discussed what fabrics would travel furthest in the air when she tossed them from her slender frame. The velvet has heft, but look at the way it also looks fluffy when she removes it in haste. When Joan Crawford disrobes, she shows us a woman unaccustomed to being kept waiting. She's just mad at herself for sitting there like a dope for two hours waiting for him. Enter Edna May Oliver, a sassmouth dame from way back, who hovers in the door to get a bitch of fashion de- debris that Joan has launched across the room. Edna May Oliver calls out, ha-cha-cha, you missed me. And she sounds like she's taken a page from May West. Joan wrote that No More Ladies wasn't her picture. It went to Edna May Oliver, who played her grandmother and wore trains, drank highballs, and said things like scram. Down to her smalls, Joan slings the gown she has been wearing over her shoulder like a fallen comrade. The moment isn't designed for viewers to ogle Joan in her silken drawers. Instead, it shows us a woman who's angry at herself for letting a man take over. Joan, as Marcia, resigns herself to an early bedtime. Her grandmother calls it a scandal. Bed at only nine o'clock? What would people think? She declares it's positively immoral. No More Ladies has so many great lines that revel in pleasure, body humor, and tiny other little protests at the newly installed Hays Code rules. In one scene, Edna Mae Oliver entertains Reginald Denny, playing a stuffed shirt, one of Marcia's hopeful suitors. The grandmother drinks highballs while he confesses he's marriage-minded. Edna Mae Oliver balks at the idea of him marrying her granddaughter. Why not Jean Harlow and Mahatma Gandhi, she quips. After the date that Joan eventually concedes to accept when Sherry turns up late, they can't go to the bedroom for a little action. Instead, the lovers repair to the kitchen to indulge other appetites. They pick at what remains of a turkey carcass taken from a gorgeous icebox. Well, Bob eats it anyway. Joan peels a piece of fruit. Before long, they're married. On their honeymoon, Joan parades around in a white swimsuit with little black X marks down the front. Even though she's quite the dish, her groom is busy picking up, picking up a dame on the beach and even lets this, this woman, this blonde, take the lemonade he bought for his wife. We can see Joan has more than her share of trouble in the post. This is the man who said before they were hitched, scratch a woman and you'll find a wife. Like we're all just waiting to become killjoys and shrews. When biographers and film critics talk about No More Ladies, they like to point out that when it came time for Joan to, to, to deliver a big speech to Bob Montgomery, George Cukor had told her to do more than show she had remembered the dialogue. Cukor, who had taken over direction when Eddie Griffith developed pneumonia, was tough on Joan. She reported that he raked her over the coals and gave her grief on set. 
For the speech, Cukor chided Joan to put feeling in every word. But somehow this version of events doesn't ring true for me. Joan was, by her own admission, an emotional actress. She said that of her technique when she was when she recalled the trouble she had on set with director Lewis Milestone, who wanted to rehearse everything to death and who told her exactly how to play every scene as Sadie Thompson. Joan tapped into experiences she had that were painful and raw to play a scene effectively. Joan spoke of using emotional memory as it's discussed in the method acting technique before she even knew what it was about. I don't buy that anyone said she was just saying words without any meaning. Look at how much meaning she puts into undressing for bed. Or how about the scene when Sherry rings Marsha and says he won't be able to meet her in their country house until the following day? Bob Montgomery tells a lie so cheap and clumsy, I grimace each time I see it. He's sorry to be delayed, but he must take care of poor dear Edgar, played by Charles Ruggles. He's pickled drunk and needs taken care of. Viewers know that Edgar is already installed in his cups in Marsha's country pile. Joan walks to the phone, content, sure of herself and her marriage, with, a, with little reason to crinkle her brow. Then she realizes her husband hasn't changed one bit. He's still playing around with other women and making a fool of her. She swallows everything she would like to say. An arctic blast descends and cools her blood. I can see what Joan's thinking, the pain, the betrayal. I can see that she starts the wheels rolling. She needs to be ready for him when he arrives the following day. Here she is, gorgeous, thriving, a newlywed, and everything she thought she knew about her husband and the state of her marriage is a sham. When Sherry finally arrives, he preempts Marcia's chance to catch him out and admits that he lied the night before because he knows Edgar's already guest in the house. Joan keeps it very highbrow. When Joan picks up her gown to make an exit, she doesn't shed a tear until she's behind a closed door in her bedroom. She wouldn't give him the satisfaction of her tears. The weekend was supposed to be a chance to be alone, but instead, they have a big house party on Saturday night. Joan plays hostess for afternoon bridge in a kite collar made of starched white pique over accordion-pleated organdy and adorned with two cabochon clips. It's bonkers. The gown looks like she's carrying a mini bridge table on her chest. Naturally, I love it. Joan couldn't smoke, eat, or drink anything while she wore it. But it looks every inch like a woman who means business. And there's a surprise when she turns around and shows off the back interest. And by back interest, I mean her back is entirely bare. And above her waist, there's a large white bow. Critics balked at the enormous collars that Adrian created for Joan in her two pictures for 1935, No More Ladies and I Live My Life. While Garbo and Shearer were chin-deep in petticoats and sausage curls doing period pictures, Joan was quietly setting all the latest trends Adrian could muster. 
the exaggerated collars came to be known as the Crawford collar. I might add that the origami PK collar totally fits the scene and the character. As Marcia, Joan assembles a group for the sole purpose of teaching her husband a lesson. She's about the t- to turn the tables on Sherry, and her costume should have been the first clue to him. Sherry catches on midway through the party that evening. During a round of charades, he has an epiphany and quips that they're really playing her game. Sherry arranges a very public exit for his wife on the arm of Francho Tone. Tongue set wagging about Joan staying out all night with another man. So Sherry must take his medicine with an audience on hand. Francho plays Jim, a husband who had been cuckolded by Bob Montgomery Sherry and divorced his cheating wife. But really, Francho's purpose here, as in real life, was to carry Joan's purse. I kid, sort of. Francho and Bob have a pissing contest while Francho hunts for Joan's enormous silver lame clutch with accordion pleats over a jeweled clasp. In real life, Joan married Francho a few months after the film premiered. He probably did more for Joan than her other husbands. For instance, he beefed up Joan's confidence to give her uh, her um, first radio appearance. So I can't be too dismissive of him. No More Ladies sidesteps the route many other pictures would take when it comes to what happens between the women. When Sherry makes a poor excuse to Mrs. Train, he was really getting busy on the down low with Gail Patrick. We know that Gail's a man-eater because when she meets Sherry at a bar, she has a collection of whole minks laced around her shoulders. Their little legs and heads loll against the gorgeous brunette. Who needs notches on a bedpost when Adrian can tell you as much with fur? Gail plays Teresa, a nightclub singer who plays the banjo. When Sherry confesses, only because he has to the morning after, he is less than gallant. When Joan asks about the other woman, he says Teresa is a graduate of the speakeasies. He as much as says she's not of our class, but she was good enough to sleep with. How tawdry, Sherry. Instead of catfights and competition, Marcia turns the tables on a skirt-chasing husband. Gail Patrick had been doing walk-ons and bit parts since 1932. Here, she's a real standout. She had mentioned to Jerry Asher, writer and publicist, that she admired Joan Crawford's still photographs. Jerry told Joan about Gail, and she invited him and to tell the aspiring actress that she could join her in a session with George Harrell. While Gail watched, Joan gave advice about how to get the best results for good glamour portraits. After the session, Joan arranged a screen test for Gail Patrick for a part in No More Ladies. Joan made sure that Sidney Gwilleroff did Gail's hair and that her makeup was done. Then she borrowed one of Adrian's gowns so that Gail would look her best. Overwhelmed by Joan's generosity, Gail offered thanks, but Joan brushed it off. She would have been glad for help once. The MGM star paid it forward. Joan doesn't mention her generosity in her memoirs. 
She praised Gail Patrick's performance and said only, I asked to have her cast as the beautiful, intelligent girl who takes Bob away from me. Notice, too, that Joan does not repeat the script's interpretation of Gail's character as a floozy from the speakeasies. You don't hear about how Joan helped new contract players. The drama around feuds with Norma or Betty or Mercedes makes juicier copy that conforms to tabloid stereotypes about catfights and bitchy diva antics. Gail Patrick, her character, arrives at the country pile with her banjo case. Marcia welcomes her without any bitchery or hi-hat treatment. She has hired Teresa to perform for their guests, so she's paid to be there. The way Gail greets Bob, you can tell the one-night stand wasn't all that. She rinsed him out of her hair already. Later, during the party, Gail's Teresa strums the banjo and sings, All I do is think of you, while she sits on a man's lap. You may recall that Jean Raymond sang that song 1,000 times over a ukulele in Sadie McKee. Gail Patrick makes him look like a chump with her rendition. For her musical performance, Gail is decked out in a black jet beaded evening gown topped with a mink. You'd be hard-pressed to tell that her pedigree is from the nightclubs rather than the Seven Sisters. As we are often reminded in woman's pictures, clothes are the great equalizer. Take a dame from a nightclub, put her in the right clothes, and presto, a lady. That's the central premise of The Bride Wore Red, Joan's picture from 1937, also from Midnight with Claudette Colbert in 1939. The central ethos of a woman's picture is clothes can make or break your life. Anyway, when they speak before Gal Patrick returns to the city, she all but apologizes for sleeping with Joan's husband. No hair pulling or dresses torn. Women have so much to fight for in life, fighting over a man seems like a real waste of energy. Not only is it more satisfying when several women appear on screen together and they get along, it was ultimately safer for women to work in women's pictures. In her first appearance on film, Joan Fontaine here in No More Ladies is listed in the credits as Joan Burfield, This was before she took her mother's maiden name. She had to face the perils of sharing the screen with one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, but it was nothing compared to what she went through for her second film. Joan Fontaine has one scene at No More Ladies. It's really short. She appears in a very tight hairdo that looks like something Cecil Cunningham would wear to play sidekick to Carol Lombard. Fontaine was only 18 years old, but the tight curls look ready for a blue rinse. She delivers a few lines at breakneck speed, which rather works because she is supposedly nursing a crush on Bob Montgomery, who takes her for a spin on the dance floor, and so she's supposed to be nervous. Joan Crawford stands there watching cool, remote, and impeccably dressed. The next film Fontaine worked on was A Million to One, released in 1936. Fontaine described being on set one day when she played a woman cheering an athlete from the stands. You know, the typical watch men do stuff role that women had to endure when they weren't in a woman's picture. 
One day when she walked on the set, the former Olympian in the cast, a champion shot putter, had been showing off by throwing various items at great velocity. The man, Herman Bricks, had taken laurels in the 1928 Olympics. He had lost out on the audition for Tarzan because of a shoulder injury. Herman Bricks later changed his name to Bruce Bennett and had better luck with his acting career. Anyway, in 1936, the athlete was grandstanding on the set. Unfortunately, one of the rocks that he threw and hurled across the field happened to land on Joan Fontaine's head, splitting her skull clean open. A grip carried her to his car and drove her to the hospital. By the time they arrived, Joan had lost so much blood she couldn't stand on her own. She was woozy. The grip carried her into the hospital and held her hand while the nurses cut off Joan's matted hair. A doctor closed the wound with 10 stitches. In a hospital bed, recovering, the film unit manager arrived with good news. They had rearranged the production schedule so that Joan wouldn't have to be on set the next day until 5 o'clock. But if she didn't make it then, he, he was sorry to say, she would be cut out of the picture. Blood-soaked and woozy, she was put on notice. What feathers were to Travis Banton and Chiffon to Helen Rose? For Adrian, it was La May that was the medium that made him shine as a costume designer. Thanks to Adrian, Joan became the most copied woman in the world. She set international global trends. One magazine wrote about the Letty Linton dress as inspiring little Joan Crawfords running all over in puff sleeves before tea time. Big shoulder silhouettes were all the rage once Adrienne remarked in a fitting that she had shoulders like Johnny Weissmuller, and the only thing to do was make them bigger. Adrienne put Joan on the map and the cover of a legion of magazines with her wingspan. But what's talked about much less, and is arguably far more interesting, is what he did for Joan with La May. Metallic lame in gold, silver, or bronze came in sheets that were then hammered or pressed into another fabric, whether it was silk, brocade, knit, or whatever. The process was expensive and time-consuming, and the finished material was delicate. But when I think of bulletproof glamour showcased in women's pictures during the 1930s, the two most important elements for me are fur and lame. In the climax of Letty Lytton, when Joan visits Nils Astor, who is sexually blackmailing her, she believes that the only recourse she has is to poison a glass of champagne that she intends to drink. But any dame in the audience who knows her onions can see the lipstick written on the wall. Nothing could harm Joan in a two-piece silver lame cocktail ensemble. She looks harder to penetrate than the tin corsets from Pet in the Park scene of Gold Diggers from 1933. Adrian's design protects Joan like a suit of armor. Joan Crawford wore more than one stunning metallic gown from Adrian. There was the gown Adrian named the Bounty, made of gold lame, 
with huge shoulder flaps like a ship's mast in I Live My Life from 1935. And in the same picture, she has an eye-watering bronze number with a pointed collar. In many ways, the showstopper of his metallic designs for Joan is the sunburst silver-pleated gown and matching cape that she wears for the party and no more ladies. You can tell how important the ensemble is because she wears it in multiple scenes. We're given the chance to enjoy it with and without accessories. It has a halter neckline with filmy pleats. It comes with a floor-length cape and a clutch purse that has the same sunburst accordion pleat over a jeweled clasp. Adrian's sunburst and silver lame was so delicate that Joan couldn't wear it for rehearsals. Instead, she had to wear the original muslin mock-up. It took more than 30 yards of silver lame at a cost of $18 per yard. If you're going to teach your husband a lesson, you might as well be fortified with silver as though you stepped from Mount Olympus. Publicity hailed the sets for No More Ladies as evidence of a shift away from the more ornate Art Deco look, which they referred to as artistic monstrosities of yesteryear. One article declared that Hollywood and New York interior decorators had adopted a neo-Greek or new Greek sensibility. New Greek was translated for the reader to mean the old horsehair sofa magically transformed into a thing of beauty. The austere elegance of the new Greek style was visible in Cedric Gibbon's sets for No More Ladies. Every owner of furniture from Grandma's Day in possession of the latest in interior decorations. Hollywood is giving the Vogue its greatest impetus in Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's No More Ladies. For this picture, the article says, Cedric Gibbons, sensing the pulse of the times, brought carloads of family antiques, replaced red plush with creamy satin gouged out the Victorian gingerbread, slapped on a highly colored paint job, and in all probability will make decorating history. The new style Cedric Gibbon showcased was a smart update on a collection of styles ranging from Napoleonic to Victorian. Bright paint replaced wallpaper, and polished floors replaced heavy carpeting. The neo-Greek country house and No More Ladies is scaled down, with interiors opened up with light, air, and simple, clean lines. The sets in the film complement Adrian's lines of designs. For example, the fluted classical columns and walls are on pillars, in some ways mirror the accordion pleats of Adrian's designs for Joan. First, the pleats underneath the the kite collar that she wears for the bridge scene, and then in the dramatic gown that she wears during the party. Joan turns the tables with as much style and panache as her home and wardrobe. All of the elements and no more ladies are in harmony. Who wouldn't want to spend the weekend away at Marsha's? No more ladies reminds me a bit of smart women. Sorry, Smart Woman, a Mary Astor picture from 1931, directed by Gregory LaCava. 
Instead of falling to pieces when she learns of her husband's affair, Mary Astor plays it cool. She takes the high road, adopts a cosmopolitan attitude about a husband who strays. She invites his new lover to spend the weekend in their country house. And then she also invites a man who has made no secret that he would happily take over her husband's duties. And both pictures take the inspired choice by depicting wives who are not out to ruin other women. Rachel Crothers adapted the script from the stage play from 1934 by A.E. Thomas. As it turned out, Crothers was shocked that producers and directors were given, as she put it, every right to pull the story to pieces and destroy it. After a number of screenwriters had applied their revisions, Crothers felt the original story was unrecognizable. She was furious and demanded that her name be removed from the screen credits. Crothers didn't understand that that was the MGM method. With more than 200 writers on the payroll, the front office felt they could always improve upon a story with collaborative input. Crothers had the same reaction that F. Scott Fitzgerald had when he was on the Metro payroll. Fitzgerald never adapted to the studio method and therefore grew to hate men like Joseph L. Mankiewicz because he mastered the art of collaborative screenwriting and used it to ascend the ranks to producer and director. Crothers and F. Scott Fitzgerald were locked into the solo author method of drama and the novel format that they had used for decades. Rachel Crothers had many hits on Broadway, starting from the first play that she had produced in 1906. There's no one like her today. She had a massive influence in telling women's stories from the first decade of the 20th century to the end of the 1930s. She wrote and often directed plays for the stage. Another Crothers play was adapted for Joan, Susan and God, which effectively showcased her comedic gifts. During the same year that Rachel Crothers had a frustrating experience in Metro, adapting No More Ladies, she was the subject of a photoplay article headlined, Filmland's New Director is a Woman. Crothers stated publicly that Sam Goldwyn was the only mogul in town who respected writers. She signed a deal with Goldwyn that paid her only $1,000 up front, but gave her a percentage of the gross. Her contract anticipated the way contracts shifted from traditional salaries to take advantage of profit sharing, which became popular in the 1940s and 1950s. The deal Crother signed was to write and supervise pictures. The only project that she finished for Goldwyn was Splendor, starring Miriam Hopkins and Joel McRae. The picture suffered at the box office, but Miriam thought of it fondly. She later said in an interview that she didn't really care for the picture she made for Goldwyn, except for Splendor. No doubt, Crothers missed the independence that she had in the, in the theater. It would be difficult to trade autonomy for the Hollywood dynamic, where she had men from the front office hanging over her shoulder. Maybe they led her to believe she would enjoy the same artistic freedom in the studio system as she knew in the stage. Alas, it was not to be. She had known critical and commercial success as a playwright and went back to the stage in New York. In the last scene of No More Ladies, 
Joan sits in her bedroom with her back against the bed. How do we know she's won the battle with her husband, Sherry? Her husband blubs for forgiveness. He leans his head on her chest as he's curled up next to her on the floor. The camera gives the dominant position to Joan to take up space. She looks down on him and he looks up at her, a rare vantage point that we only get in woman's pictures, where we are the center of the story. Sherry appears smaller, supplicant, boyish. She gets what she wants in the end. And even if we don't understand why she wants it, that's all that matters, is that Joan comes out on top. The following books helped me to write the episode. A Portrait of Joan, the autobiography of Joan Crawford by Joan Crawford and Jane Kesner Ardmore. Joan Crawford, a biography by Bob Thomas. Gowns by Adrian, the MGM years, 1928 to 1941 by Howard Guttner. MGM Style, Cedric Gibbons and the Art of the Golden Age of Hollywood by Howard Guttner. No Bed of Roses by Joan Fontaine. And two articles, Puffed Sleeves Before Tea Time, Joan Crawford, Adrian, and Women Audiences by Charlotte Cornelia Herzog and Jane Marie Gaines. Filmland's New Dictator is a, is a Woman from Photoplay 1935. It's time for my annual break. I'll be back in November with episode 78 on Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper and the made-for-TV movie Malice in Wonderland, starring Elizabeth Taylor as Luella and Jane Alexander as Hedda. Thanks for listening. Why not leave a nice review on iTunes if you're enjoying Sassmouth Dames? Thanks very much.